You know, we're on the brink of the school year uh, starting back up again. And I was reminded of what it was like when I was in elementary school, uh, the significant moment that happened every day at two o'clock. The recess bell would ring and all of us boys would go out to the pavement where we would have our medal tested. We would compete at various sports, trying to see who could be top dog, and there would be a lot of big talk there on the playground. We would talk about how each of us were the world's best four-square player, the world's best kickball player, and of course, being in Kentucky, who was the best basketball player. For me, I always had the dream of putting on the big blue and wearing the jersey and running out in the Rupp Arena. And that was my moment to let the whole school know that I was destined for greatness. But there would be two words that would often come that would settle the, settle the argument. Finally, someone would finally say, after talking such a big talk, they would say, prove it. You think you're so great? Prove it. Well, when we get to the book of Philippians, we see where the Apostle Paul is challenging the church at Philippi that when it comes to their salvation, you need to prove it. Let me show you. Grab your Bible and turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. The Apostle Paul planted the church at Philippi on his second missionary journey. Uh, we saw last fall when we got to Acts 16 how Paul went into Philippi and he planted his very first church on European soil. Now he's planted this church with a ragtag group of people. Uh, we see that uh, there's a, a wealthy entrepreneur named Lydia. We see a demon-possessed girl and a Roman jailer who become the foundation blocks for this church being planted in this Roman city, that indeed a, a woman, a slave, and a Gentile are the foundations of this church in Philippi. Now, this is a special church that Paul had great love and affection for. He loved these people so much. He, he writes this letter of encouragement and affirmation of his great love and affection for them. They were precious to him. They financially supported his ministry. They financially supported him as he preached the gospel, planted churches, and made disciples and wrote all of these letters. In fact, Paul's writing the book of Philippians from a Roman prison. It is there in that prison that the church at Philippi sends a financial gift to him through a man named Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus shows up. He gives Paul this gift from the church at Philippi. But while Epaphroditus is there, 800 miles from home, he gets sick. And he's so sick that he almost dies. But God preserves his life. Paul then sends Epaphroditus back to the church, thanking them for their generosity towards his ministry. And he writes them this letter just to encourage them and to praise them and to thank them for their partnership in the ministry. He also reminds them over and over again, rejoice in the Lord, rejoice in the Lord. Maybe you're going through a season of hardship and trial right now. You're experiencing maybe depression, pain, difficulty. I wanna encourage you, set up camp in the book of Philippians. This is a book of great encouragement to encourage you to keep following hard after the Lord Jesus Christ. It's something that sticks out to me about the Apostle Paul here in the book of Philippians is he, several times, he says, you are my joy and my crown. He's telling the church how much he loves them and he adores them. Westwood, may I say to you, you are my joy and my crown. I love you and I delight in you. 
I rejoice in being your pastor. And I want you to know your pastor and your entire staff loves you so much and we delight in you. As we think about the Apostle Paul writing this letter, this is such a sweet moment in his ministry in which he gets to come alongside and to love and encourage this church that he planted years and years ago. In chapter two, he begins addressing the topics of unity and humility. He points to Jesus as the perfect model of humility and then he launches into a song, a hymn, an early church uh, song that they would sing together in verses six through 11, exalting in Jesus and who he is and what he has come to do. But then we see Paul pivot in Philippians chapter two, verse 12. And that's where we're gonna pick up together. In Philippians two, beginning in verse 12, the scripture says this. Therefore, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is working in you, both to will and to work according to his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling and arguing so that you may be blameless and pure, children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation, among whom you shine like stars in the world by holding firm to the word of life. Then I can boast in the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing. As you and I stand on the doorstep of 2024, we have an opportunity as a church and as individual believers to live lives for the glory of King Jesus. With gospel-motivated obedience, we have the privilege of giving Jesus our best. So today, as we look at the text I want all of us moving forward to commit this year to, number one, prove your salvation through your obedience. Prove your salvation through your obedience. The call that Paul places upon the Philippian church is to work out your own salvation. We see the word therefore, verse 12. Paul is arguing therefore in light of who Christ is, in light of what Christ has done, verses six through 11, Go prove that you know him by working out your salvation. With gospel-motivated sweat on your brow, Paul's saying, work hard for the glory of God and so prove that you belong to Christ. You see, you prove your salvation through your gospel-motivated obedience. Now, Paul has already gone on record that we are not saved by our works. You go read Romans and Galatians and Ephesians and Titus and all throughout his writings. Paul champions, he exalts the grace of God. That salvation is not something we work for. It's not something that we earn, but it is the free gift of God in Jesus Christ. That it's because of Jesus's perfect sinless life, Jesus's substitutionary death on the cross, Jesus's bodily resurrection from the dead, Jesus's ascension up into heaven. It is all because of the work of Christ in Christ alone that we are saved. And yet simultaneously, we prove that we are saved through our works. Your life is evidence of whether or not you're a believer. Proof of your faith is seen by what you do. This is the argument that James, make in, James makes in James chapter two. In James two, he says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? Can such a faith save him? 
You see, proof that you belong to Jesus is seen by your actions. It's seen by the life that you lead, all right? The proof is in the pudding. People can see on the outside what's really going on on the inside. You go to the farmer who claims to have faith. He goes and he believes that God will give a crop and yet his seeds remain in the barn. That's not a farmer with faith. A a farmer who has faith, he trusts God for the sun. He trusts God for the rain. He trusts God for for the growth. But he also gets up early in the morning and he gets to work. He plants the seed. He proves his faith that growth will come by doing the hard work. You go to 2 Kings 5. You see someone like, like Naaman, a man who is a general, who is covered from head to toe in leprosy. He did not experience healing until he dipped seven times in the Jordan River. His healing took place after his obedience. The proof of his faith was seen by his actions. So it is for you and I. If you are a follower of Jesus, it is going to be seen in and through your life. The proof that you belong to Jesus is seen by the world around you. But did you notice the attitude that you and I are to have as we work out our salvation? Look at verse 12. He says, we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Paul is describing a healthy fear of God. Fearing God is knowing who we are in light of who he is. That we are alive, breathing, and saved only because he said so. We are a people who must give an account before the sovereign Lord of all. The fear of the Lord is rightly seeing him for who he is and knowing who we are in light of him. And it leads us to awe. It leads us to respect and humility. We are children of God who do not want to dishonor their father. We are believers who do not want to offend the Holy One. From our hearts, we desire to honor and obey the righteous one. And so we get low, we get humble before him whom we're going to see face to face very soon. We also see in the text that God protects us from pride when it comes to our sanctification. The process of becoming more and more like Jesus God protects us from pride in verses 12 and 13 to show that it's not us who ultimately do the work. God is the one who sanctifies us. Now, what we're about to unpack is, in my opinion, going to change your life. That's not hyperbole. That's not exaggeration. That's not preacher talk. I genuinely believe in what we're about to unpack here is going to change the way that you think about God. It's going to change the way you think about yourself. And it's going to change the way that you live your life. It all comes down to the relationship between the indicative and the imperative. Stay with me. The indicative and the imperative. What are you talking about? Let's define our terms. The indicative. The indicative is a statement of truth. It's what Christ has done. The imperative is a command to obey. It's something that we must do. Stay with me here. Indicative and imperative. In scripture, the indicative imperative, they hold hands. They they always go together. They're an inseparable pair. 
Gospel indicatives is all that God has done for us in Christ. Gospel imperatives is our obedience to Christ, for Christ, and with Christ. So when you think about scripture, God's commands are couched in his character and his actions. All right, let me give you some examples. Stay with me. First Peter 1, be holy for I am holy. All right, be holy, it's a command, it's an imperative. Why? God says, for I am holy, indicative. It's who he is. 2 Corinthians 5, God was reconciling the world to himself, indicative. Be reconciled to God, imperative. Being reconciled to God, being made right with God is all because of what God has done in reconciling the world to himself. Ephesians 4, 32, forgive each other just as God in Christ forgave you. Forgive, imperative, command, something we were to do. The indicative, it's the why, because God has forgiven you. Romans 15, be hospitable with one another because God has welcomed you. He has shown hospitality to you. Indicative, God has welcomed you. Command, now you welcome others. 1 John 4, we love God. Why? Because he first loved us. We love him, command, because he loved us first, indicative. Do you see the relationship? Stay with me on this one. This is huge because we're about to see it here in the text, here in verses 12 and 13, that there's this relationship between the indicative and the imperative. Every imperative of scripture What we are to do, obedience to God, rests on the indicative, what God has done for us. And the order is not reversible. I'm going to say it like this. In the gospel, acceptance compels obedience, not the other way around. Obedience to Jesus overflows from what he has already done for you. Okay, now this flies in the face of the pattern of thinking that I am going to try and earn God's favor by what I do. I'm going to obey God so I can, I can save myself. I can work for my salvation. I'm going to obey God just to get him off my back. Or I'm just going to do what he says to do so that I can just appease him. No, that's not motivation for obedience. You see, God wants you to see what all that he's done for you in his son few weeks ago, many of you gathered around a Christmas tree and you had the moment in which you handed over a freshly wrapped gift and you handed it over to a child or to a spouse or someone you love in your life. You can imagine that moment right now. You can probably even picture everybody in the room where they were seated and they open up the gift and you see their eyes and their expression and the joy of seeing what you just, just gave them. I want you to imagine that in that moment, They pull out their wallet, they count out the money, and they pay you back for the gift. That's an insult. It's a slap in the face. They're robbing the giver of the joy of the gift. People who trust in themselves for salvation are doing exactly that. God has graciously given us a free gift in his son Jesus, He has offered his son as the perfect sacrifice for sin and gives it to us freely and joyly and says, just open the gift, receive the gift. It's yours. I love you so much. This is for you. 
And when you trust in your good works rather than in the gift that he's provided for you, it's like you're pulling out your wallet trying to pay God back for a gift that you can never repay. You're robbing the giver of the joy of the gift. You're taking away God's glory of him displaying his love through his son. In the gospel, God has provided his son as the means of salvation. And we are a people who do not trust in our good works, but in the perfect works of Jesus. You see, trusting in your good works minimizes the cross. What you're saying by trusting in your works before God is saying, Jesus, your death was not enough. It was insufficient. It was not sufficient to cover all of my sins. If you can earn your way to heaven on your own, hear me on this, then Jesus died for nothing. So as we're about to unpack some commands from Scripture I want to make sure we're couching it rightly that these commands that God gives to us is not for our salvation, but from our salvation. You are saved by the grace of Jesus and that rescuing grace that you have received in the gospel now motivates obedience. You see, this idea of earning your way to God, of trying to do your good works, trusting in, in who you are, it's foreign to the Bible, Never have believers been able to trust in themselves for their salvation. There's even a, a, a thought, a belief, even by some believers, that to be right with God in the Old Testament, it was based upon obedience to the law. That's not the case. Salvation in the Old Testament was by faith trusting that God would one day send the seed of the woman. He would send a Messiah. He would send salvation. Salvation in the Old Testament was looking forward to a future Messiah. They just didn't know his name. For us living on this side of the cross, salvation is by looking backwards at the Messiah. But both groups are saved by grace through faith in the Messiah. This is Paul's argument in Romans chapter 4, in which he says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That his faith is what made him righteous before God. And just as his faith made him right before God, so too does your faith in Jesus Christ. That your faith is trusting in Jesus, not in your own good works. Far too many people view religion as if that is the means in which you gain access to God. Hear me on this. Religion is man's endless pursuit of trying to please God with dead works. Islam is a religion based on imperatives. Do this, do this, do this. Don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. Judaism is a religion based upon imperatives. Do this, do this, do this. Don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. Hinduism is a religion based upon imperatives. Do this, do this, do this. Don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. Christianity is foundationally based on indicatives. Christ did this. Christ did that. 
Jesus kept the law. Jesus obeyed perfectly. Jesus is your righteousness. Jesus is your rescuer. Jesus is your salvation. Jesus is your redeemer. Jesus is your perfection. Jesus is your sufficiency. Jesus is enough. Jesus is your security. Jesus died and rose again. So now you work out your salvation not to be accepted, but because you already are accepted in Jesus. Do you see that? Please grab hold of this. It means that you don't obey God because you have to. It's because you see all that God has done for you in Christ, how he's changed your heart, you're forgiven, redeemed, adopted, you belong to him, and now, man, I can't help but obey. I want to obey my father. It's not a drudgery, it's a delight. I delight in him all because of what he has done for me in the gospel. I think Tim Keller got it exactly right when he said, religion says, I obey, therefore I am accepted. Christianity says, I'm accepted, therefore I obey. So in light of the free gift of salvation that God has offered to you in his son, what do we do with that? We prove that we already possess it. I want you to see in verses 12 and 13, the indicative and the imperative. Verse 12, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, imperative. Verse 13, for it is God working in you, both to will and to work according to his good purpose, indicative. Our working out our salvation flows from, verse 13, God is the one working in us. It is God, verse 13, who is working in you to will and to work, all right? God's giving you the desire and the ability. He's giving you the motivation and the engine. God is doing the work inside of you. He's inspiring you. He's enabling you. He's empowering you to, verse 12, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, It's God who's giving you the desire. So he alone gets the glory. So you can't walk around saying, man, look how awesome I am as a believer. I'm crushing it. I'm so wise. I'm so humble. Man, people, look at, look at, it's not you. It's God, verse 13, who is working in you. God works in you. You work out what he's doing inside of you. So as you're maturing as a believer, that's God working in you. That's God transforming your thinking, your feeling, your choosing, your living. Everything is being transformed. You're you're being transformed from one degree of glory to another, Paul says. Romans 8, 29, you're being conformed into the image of Jesus. It's the mission of the Holy Spirit to transform you and to make you look more and more like Christ. And it's a lifelong process. It's going to take the rest of your life for you to become like Jesus, And when you're taking your last breath before you go on to glory, you're still a debtor to grace. You're still going to be in desperate need of the grace of Jesus. You're going to be a lot further along than you were when you first believed, but you still got a long way to go. But the beauty is the sustaining grace of Jesus that he helps you grow and mature and to develop as a believer. So as you work out your salvation with fear and trembling, You are proving that it is God working in you, verse 13, to will and to work according to his good pleasure. The indicative, verse 13, of God working in you leads to the imperative of verse 12 of working out your salvation with fear and trembling. Do you see the importance of this relationship between the indicative and the imperative? 
See, some people think I've got to obey or else God's going to get me. I've got to obey or I'm just, I'm going to be destined for hell. That's not God's motivation for obedience. He wants you to see all that he's done for you and his son. All the work of Christ, what he did for you at the cross, how he died, rose again, gives eternal life, lived the life you couldn't live, died the death you deserved, rose again, giving life to all who trust in him. And from the overflow of who he is and what he's done, now you get to obey. Do you see the difference? This changes your motivation for your living your life, that you're not on like a continuous hamster wheel trying to just earn God's favor in which you feel like you're working so hard where you're not getting anywhere. Get off the wheel and look that Jesus has done everything for you and his work now motivates your working for his glory. You're eager to honor him and to live for him, to point to him, to prove what you've already got. That's terrible English. That's great theology. Look what Christ has done for you in the gospel. But the second thing I want you to see in the text, as we prove what we've already got in Christ and we give him our best, let's pursue holiness while living in a corrupt world. Paul calls the Philippian church away from, verse 14, grumbling and arguing. Grumbling is, is an attitude of ingratitude. It's frustration over circumstances that God has ordained for your life. That word for arguing, it means criticizing God. That's what Paul's driving home here. So there's a sense in which grumbling comes from the heart Arguing comes from the mind. And God is calling you and I to a better life. He's calling you and I away from grumbling over our circumstances, calling us away from arguing with him, thinking we know better than him. And it's the pursuit of a better life in Jesus. It's a life of purity, a life of blamelessness, a life above reproach. Oh, that God would stir within our hearts as followers of Jesus a passion for holiness. A desire for you and I to be going hard after Jesus and we're pursuing him, we're wanting to know him, living differently than the rest of the world. From the music you listen to, the movies you watch, the shows you enjoy, the friends you surround yourself with, that you're going hard after Christ and stumbling blocks that get in your way of following hard after Jesus, you toss them to the side and say, Christ is number one over my heart and life. But you see, this... Christian life that God calls us to. It's not a call to just drift in the world. It's not a call as a Christian just to live however you want to feel. To be a believer in Jesus, it's a fight. It's a fight to pursue holiness. You have to go against the grain of the world. You have to fight against your own flesh. You have to war against the devil and his schemes. You see, the call to be a disciple is to swim upstream against the roaring current that rages against God as it gushes its way toward hell. You have to fight for holiness. It's a journey of pursuing and going hard after Jesus, and it does not end until Jesus calls you home or he returns. We've got to pursue holiness that as followers of Jesus, our lives look different than the rest of the world around us. 
Because our hope, our joy, our identity, our worth and value is found in Christ and Christ alone. And so when he is number one in your heart and your life, he changes how you live. This is what Paul's driving home in Philippians 2. This is what it means to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. I think D.A. Carson came out swinging beautifully in his devotion called For the Love of God. And it's in there, he has this quote. He says, people do not drift toward holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, I love those three words. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness, prayer, obedience to scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. We drift toward compromise and call it tolerance. We drift toward disobedience and call it freedom. We drift toward superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch toward prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we have escaped legalism. We slide toward godlessness and convince ourselves we have been liberated. Grace-driven effort. Those three words summarize Philippians 2. That it's the grace of Jesus that empowers you and I with sanctified sweat coming off our foreheads. We're giving our best. We're giving our all for the Lord Jesus Christ. So what does that look like for you and I? I want to place before you six imperatives, commands that come from Scripture that will inspire you and I this year to go and live our lives for the glory of King Jesus. Number one is this. Daily deny, die, and follow. Daily deny, die, and follow. You and I never grow beyond Luke 9, 23. Where Jesus says, if any man would come after me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross, and follow me. Daily deny, die, and follow. Kenneth Bruce has to die every day. I've got to put to death my flesh my desires and say, Jesus, you have first place over all of my life, over my playlist, over my relationships, over my family. Jesus, you are number one. As a follower of Jesus, you intentionally place him as number one over all of your heart and your life. You do that by daily denying, dying, and following him. Number two, memorize scripture. If you want to be holy, you need more Bible. Three weeks ago, I had breakfast with one of the college students here in our church. And there over Chick-fil-A Biscuit, we had a great conversation. Here's what struck me. Without the course of about an hour and 15 minutes of our meeting there, this young man probably quoted more than 100 Bible verses to me in our conversation just weaving scripture in and out of our conversation. As he was talking, I was like, that's Luke 9. That's Romans 6. That's Galatians 4. As he was just talking, and what was happening is the scripture he has been hiding in his heart was overflowing. He wasn't preaching and he wasn't quoting it by name. They were just being woven in and out of our conversation. Well, how did that scripture get there? It was intentional. He had to memorize it, internalize it, implant the word into his heart so that he might be able to articulate it, not to impress me, but rather he was just displaying who he already was. I saw a young man who was hungry for God. And I was like, oh God, raise up a hundred more of men like this. 
Men who want the word and they're hungry for more of you. Oh my, it was unbelievable just hearing the word. Hear me, if you want to live a holy life, you need more Bible, not less. But when you're driving in the car, press play and listen to the Bible as you're driving. For me, I memorize scripture by writing it on an index card and I have to look at it over and over and over again. Right now, I've got these two verses in Philippians 2. I just cannot seem to get y'all. Oh, it's so frustrating. I'm gonna keep going. Memorization is not easy for me. It's hard work, but it's grace-driven effort. You have to work for it. But if you and I can memorize statistics of athletes, we can memorize this. It's far more important. Number three, more church, less couch. You need the local church and the local church needs you. Y'all, it's so easy to get out of a habit. It's really hard to start new habits. A week ago, many of you may have already started some resolutions that have already been broken. It's hard to start new habits. COVID gave many people a reason to stop gathering with the local church. Here's the problem. That was four years ago. Hear me on this. You need the local church. You cannot comfort a widow from your couch. You cannot come alongside a hurting teenager from the golf course. You cannot pray with a saint. You cannot weep with those who weep. You cannot rejoice with those who rejoice when you're at home by yourself. I'm all for podcasts and listening to great preaching. I'm all for great gospel-centered worship in which we sing to Jesus. Yes and amen. Technology is a great gift in that way, but it cannot replace this. Being in the room and building relationships with people. Connecting. You were made for relationships. I've said this before. You were made for people, not for pixels. You need more church, not less. For many in our culture, church, you're committed, you're committed to your church if you come once every six weeks. May that not be the case for you. May you declare with Joshua from Joshua 24, as for me and my house, we're gonna serve the Lord. Number four, pray, pray, pray. Pray, pray, pray. May this year your knees be ingrained into the carpet of your bedroom as you're getting on your face and you're seeking God in prayer. You go into your closet and you seek God with all your heart. We are a praying people. These prayer bands, just, hey, we're gonna pray this week for teenagers. In fact, Wednesday night, I wanna ask you, I want you back here in this room. Wednesday night at 6.15, we as a church are gonna gather for an hour of prayer. We're gonna seek the Lord together. We're gonna sing and we're gonna pray. Not gonna preach. We're gonna pray. We're gonna sing. We're gonna pray. We're gonna sing. We're gonna pray. We're gonna pray. We're gonna pray. We are a praying church. I've got people in my life who desperately need Jesus. So we're going to pray. You've got people in your life who need Jesus. We're going to pray. You've got needs in your life. We're going to pray. That's who we are as a church. You want to grow in holiness? You've got to pray. Seek his face. Fifthly, phone down, eyes up. You and I are living dangerously of living distracted lives. That phone in your pocket is a tremendous tool, but it's also a distraction from following hard after Jesus. And there are people living around you that are in desperate need of Christ 
Do you know when you're walking and you're looking at your phone and there's those blurry things all around you? That's people. And they need Jesus. So when you're in the doctor's office, put your phone down. When you're spending time with your family, put your phone down. Your kids want your attention. When you're out in the community, put your phone down. Engage with your neighbors. My concern is that our phones are pulling us further and further apart from one another. Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness and put that phone phone down and get your eyes up. Sixthly, give generously and cheerfully. As you think about your finances that God has entrusted to you for this brief temporary life that you have, all that you and I would say, God, I want to give you my best. But it's going to come from a heart full of joy, not grudgingly giving. It's not a burden, it's a joy. I'm not sure about you, but in this brief life that we have left until we go see Jesus, I say we give him our best. I say we go work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And as we do, here's what's gonna happen. It's your impact point, it's this. You make it your mission in 2024 to shine bright for Jesus in a dark world. That's Paul's point there in verse 15. That in the world around us that is getting darker and darker, we shine brighter and brighter. That Jesus is glorified through his people who live lives that honor him. So Westwood, let's go prove what we've already got. Let's pursue holiness with all that we've got. And let's go live for the glory of King Jesus.